for half a century, WJPZ Syracuse has been the greatest media classroom on the planet. We've trained students from the 1970s to the 2020s on how to run a professional radio station. But the lessons learned and relationships formed go far beyond studios and transmitters. Taking a look back through the eyes of those who experienced it. This is WJPZ at 50. Welcome to WJPZ at 50, joined by a couple of Hall of Famers today from the class of 1986. That is Chris Bungo and Rago Macri from Promo Suite and many other things that you will know them for. Uh, and if you've worked at a radio station, chances are you've used their software if you worked in the commercial radio industry. So welcome, gentlemen. Hi. Hey, thanks for having us. All right. We're going to start, as we usually do on these podcasts, with getting to Syracuse. Chris, we'll start with you, your journey there and, uh, and how you got involved with the station. So my journey to Syracuse, I, I've got to thank my old high school band director, Peter Bohr. Uh, my grades in high school were, eh, <laughs> so we all know Syracuse has very high standards when it comes to academic uh, credentials. But he was the one who actually talked to the band director up there. And uh, that was apparently what pushed me over the edge and, and got me into Syracuse. I landed at Lawrenson Hall, 14th floor, and that happened to be the same floor as Steve Simpson, mm. who is a uh, WJPZ alum. And a future guest on this podcast. Oh, good score. Great. Uh, he's working in Minneapolis now, I think. Mm -hmm. So Steve Simpson was on, on my floor. Uh, in, in my first year, I was working at an AER, but not really getting anywhere uh, at <laughs> AER. Uh, they had me doing news stories, which was just horribly uh, uninteresting to me. One day, Steve Simpson came up to me. I guess he heard me on AER and said, hey, you know, we have this other station, WJPZ. I'm like, huh? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like top 40 music. You know, if you want to be a DJ instead of doing news. Uh, and I was like, hmm, that's interesting. And I think, I don't know if Chris Mossman was also on our floor, but somehow I got hooked up with Chris Mossman as well, who was the GM. And uh, the two of them convinced me to take a 4 a.m. to 6 a.m. shift on Tuesday mornings. It was a ball. So that's how I got to WJPC. And at that point, we were only broadcasting on the internal SU campus cable system. Mm -hmm. Yep. And whoever the company was that did cable for the city of Syracuse as well, we were also on there. So we would actually get calls from people, you know, out in the city as well. That's also when I met Chris Godsick. Mm -hmm. I think you talked to him already as well. Yep. He was the shift before me. I think he was doing two to four. And uh, so that's how I met him. And he was just like, you know, so much energy. And I was like, oh, I'm at the right place. This is the place for me. Rocco, tell me how you ended up uh, at the station and meeting Chris. Well, my credit goes to Marv Albert. I read a, a book called Crazy About the Knicks. And when I was reading about the author, I saw that he went to Syracuse. I was about 14 at the time. And I started realizing that, you know, just about every broadcaster that I admired went to Syracuse. And at the time, I wanted to be a broadcaster and speak on the radio and do play-by-play -play for sports. So when I got to Syracuse, I went to WAER my freshman year. And there was like a list of five or six things you had to do, a lot of hoops to get on the air. And I have to admit, my freshman year, I wasn't that motivated. So uh, in my sophomore year, I started writing for the Daily Orange, and I found that sports writing was more my thing. Mm -hmm. 
and I had given up on radio, but also I lived next door to the late, great Mike Nelson Mm -hmm. and Jeff Erskine, who were both at the station. And they were telling me all about it. And hey, you know, it's just on on the cable channel right now, but eventually we're going to go on to FM and you really should join now because it's going to get really popular. And let me tell you, they know what they were talking about. (laughs) Yeah. So I ended up doing a 4 a.m. to 7 a.m. shift. Uh, Steve Simpson was our program director at the time. And I remember doing a couple of air check sessions with him. And that's when I realized uh, deep down that I was probably not going to be uh, Bob Costas or Marv Albert. But I really caught the radio bug. And I was at the time an advertising major. And Chris Mossman and Larry Barron, who were running the station, knew that. And I was working at university advertisers. So I had asked them if I can have WJPZ as my account, which they did. And then a couple months later, the promotion director, um, Jim Safiris, is that correct, Chris? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jim had graduated in uh, December. So there was an opening and it was right before we went on FM. So that's how I got involved. It was really through the back door. I became the promotion director. I had no idea what the promotion director even meant at that time. Um, I'll tell you a, a quick little story. On the night that we went on the air, January 30th, 1985, Chris Mossman was the first DJ. He gave away tickets to a movie premiere. And when they were done, Chris and Larry handed me a list. And I'm like, what is this? And they said, it's the guest list. I go, what am I supposed to do with it? And they're like, you're the promotion director. (laughs) I'm like, oh. Anyway, I don't want to give away what other stories I want to talk about, but it's amazing that I went from that sort of being so naive on uh, the first night of FM. And less than two years later, I was working in a New York City radio station in promotions, just showing how amazing the A9 is and how instrumental in my life and career. I've got a tote board here in the studio. Let me just put one more hash mark on folks who got to Syracuse and went to WAER and wanted to be the next Bob Costas, but then ended up at JPZ and having a much better time. The list seems to be growing with each uh, recording that I do here of this podcast. (laughs) So how did you guys meet? Yeah, as promotion director, I said, how do we get this on the air? I want to promote this. I don't remember what the first thing was that I wanted to promote. And they said, you got to write a script and go talk to the production director. So uh, I think it was Scott Hunter, who was the public service director on the uh, initial FM senior staff. He brought me in to meet Chris and Chris was like, big smile on his face, so excited to meet me. And for the first couple months, uh, you know, uh, he kept that smile on his face. Now that I've known him, how many years later? 37 years later. (laughs) We don't smile as much with each other anymore, but uh, no, it was, I'm going to say something really nice, Chris. Don't listen. Um, That was a very pivotal, I mean, the second most pivotal moment in my life. The, you know, the first was meeting my wife and walking by her when she was at a reception desk at Nestle Foods and when I was temping there. But the second was meeting Chris because really that one meeting set up the rest of my career. I ended up working in radio for 16 years and starting a company with Chris and we're 32 years into that. So um, Chris, it was an honor meeting you on that day. Yes, it was. You know, we've talked to a few other alumni from the mid 80s that were there for the big transition over to FM. Take me through that through your eyes. You know, you said uh, Mossman was the first one on the air and you launched the FM signal. All of a sudden you can hear the station on campus over the actual air uh, into the city as well from atop Mount Olympus. Take me through the evolution of the station as you become 
all of a sudden a big time player in the market. Oh boy. Well, let's break this down a bit, I guess. So in the spring of 1985, we were both juniors and nothing but respect and thanks and gratitude for the people who actually got us on the air. And, and let's mention them here. Uh, Eric Fitch, Hall of Famer as well, uh, who basically wired up the whole works. Chris Mossman, Bob Flint. Was Ellen Bogan involved, Rocco? Yes, he got the uh, funding for the uh, transmitter. I'll do a little cross-promotion here, Chris, because the three gentlemen you just mentioned, along with Phil Lacasio, we have a podcast of the four of them together talking about the story. And it, and it won't surprise you to know that when we recorded the podcast, Eric was on a headset at a transmitter site on top of the Prudential Tower in Boston doing now what he was doing <laughs> then. So <laughs> Yeah, so we kind of, and Rocco, correct me, because my memory isn't always the best, but that semester... You know, we weren't really all that involved in shaping the station. It was in the summer of 1985 that Rocco and I got together and started really brainstorming about, hey, how could we make this station exciting and Z100 New York-ish? Yeah. Because that was really when Z100 in New York was at their the pinnacle. So, and we both lived in the New York area too. So, what I did that summer was I just recorded hours and hours of Z100. I then would take their promos and their their top of the hours and all of that. And whenever I could isolate a little bit of an explosion or a laser or some sort of sound effect from one and then get the continuation of it from another, I was able to splice those all together. And by the time we got back in August of 1985 up to campus, uh, we had our first sound effects library. And Rocco, do you want to pick it up from there as to what we did in the summer of 85? I'm just hoping the statute of limitations for, uh, for stealing all of that has passed and uh, you will not get in trouble. 37 years, I think we're okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and Malwright Broadcasting is no longer in existence, so... Yeah, well, I heart the successor. But anyway, so we got together over the summer and we talked about, you know, what could we be doing and all of this. Dave Dwyer was uh, the PD. After we and Rocco, you can explain some of the ideas we came up with, but we ended up presenting them to Dave Dwyer, the program director. He was like, this is fantastic. He was also from the New York area, so he's familiar with Z100. Sure. And why don't you explain, Rocco, some of the things that we actually did? starting in September of that year, 1985? Yeah, so when Chris talks about the founders of the radio station, me and Chris, I guess we could say we drank the Kool-Aid on that. We bought into <laughs> it completely. And we knew that, you know, the charter of the radio station was to be a CHR. We really admired and appreciated the way the station came out, you know, in terms of the music that Mary Mancini put together with, um, who, who else, with Mark Humble and Dave Levin. And it was like kind of combining, it was all done in the CHR style, but it was really trying to, you know, new music, uh, new wave at the time, I think it was called, a lot of it coming from uh, Europe. And so the idea was, how do we sound more like a top 40 station so that the DJs are getting the right experience? And we really have that energy of a Z100, but at the same time, we 
kind of honor uh, or stay within the format of the new music that we were playing mm-hmm. because that new music was also satisfying a little bit of a need to keep the college students at bay about wanting us to be a block format station. Ah, um, okay. Because at least you were getting that, that new music feel, but we were still doing a top 40 format. So the idea that we came up with uh, ended up being a future radio Z89 uh, instead of hit radio. And we played the future hits. Um, I think the first liner of the hour, maybe you can uh, get this, Chris. It was at the O four. We played the hits before their hits. What what was the exact liner? Do you remember? Z eighty nine. We play the hits before they're hot. I like it. No, that wasn't it. Uh, <laughs> it was very close to that though. So that was the concept, really. It was just kind of reworking, putting a little bit of a marketing spin on the programming and everybody bought into it and we, we all worked together. And I mean, the station really started to sound great in the fall and, and um, we carried that over. So let me pick up on that. The station really started to sound great. So I was in a senior staff meeting and this was in the spring of 1985. The aforementioned Eric Fitch put together a beautiful radio station, a wonderful sound to the radio station it was perfect for a classical music format, the audio processing. Huh. So I'm sitting in this senior staff meeting, and Rob Weingarten, who was the uh, sports department, head of the sports department, said, Fitchy, how come I can always tell whenever we go from a song that's on cart to a song that's on vinyl, because we had turntables back yep. then also yep. for the older songs, the recurrence. I can always tell when it goes over to the vinyl. Uh, And Fitch said, well, because that's the source. That's the content. It just sounds different. And I was thinking, hmm, well, I don't think that should really be the case. So Larry Barron was our GM starting in the summer of 1985 and took Mm -hmm. us through the summer of 86. And I said to Larry, you know, a CHR station needs to sound very processed. Yep. And it needs to sound dense and just smooth. It's a wall of sound. This is the 1980s. A continuous wall of sound. I had a program director in the late 2000s who came up around 1990, and that was one of his things, the continuous wall of sound. I, I remember that well, yep. Yeah. So I said to Eric Fitch, you know, why can't we turn up the compression on our Optimod. He said, no, then we'll lose all the musicality. Hmm. I said, but it's not about the musicality. It's about the energy. And he and I went back and forth on that. And it was like, it was, it was a no go. Um, he said, well, we've got compressors on the microphones. That makes everyone sound better. I'm like, yeah, but that, that's only part of it. So fast forward to the very end of August, 1985, Larry Barron's in town. I'm saying, Larry, Larry, you got to let me turn up the compression. I got to turn up the compression. <laughs> turn it up to 11. We got to sound like a CHR. And I had to explain to him the whole thing about what compression is. He's like, well, I don't know. I mean, should we really do it? And I'm like, Larry, it's not like when we're playing Huey Lewis in the news, it's going to sound like uh, Sade coming out. <laughs> it's still going to be Huey Lewis in the news coming out of the radio. It's just, he, trust me. So he said, okay. So I went up to the uh, top of Mount Olympus to the uh, transmitter and the Optimod and cranked it up and uh, that did it. We were sounding, I want to say, competitive mm-hmm. with the other stations in town. Even though competing for ratings, that was drilled into us that, 
hey, we're not here for ratings. You know, we're students. We're all learning. We're going to make mistakes, et cetera, et cetera. Don't worry about making mistakes. It was never about getting the ratings. But I did want us to sound professional. So this is summer 86. This is summer of 85. This is the end of August 1985. Okay. So let me hop in for a second. Rocco doesn't know this is coming, but Chris sent me a promo from shortly thereafter. So this is January of 86. This is promoting the one year anniversary party. It's a promo that is so perfect for the era. And fair warning before I hit it, it's almost two minutes long, which in hindsight is awesome. Here it goes. (laughs) Z89 is throwing a five-day party, and all you need to do is listen to be a part. Z89 Weekend. Thursday Party Blitz. Wednesday, January 29th. We found just the right man to kick off our five-day birthday extravaganza. Join ERR at midnight for a special edition Zappy Hour. January 30th. Check the zaniness of the crazy morning crew live from the Shine Student Center from 7 a.m. to noon. And at 6 p.m., Z89 will be exactly one year old. Be sure to tune into the Z for a while. Champagne celebration. But that's not all. Thursday night, meet the ZJs at Maggie's for a birthday party to top all others. Listen to win. Free tickets. Friday, January 31st. <laughs> you won't want to miss one minute of the Crazy Morning Crew's first birthday party. They'll be drawing the grand prize winner of the birthday escape giveaway. Sorry, Mom, but I'm skipping school for the crew Friday morning. I might win. <laughs> Friday night, we'll keep the party hopping with a special edition Friday Night Street Beat live from the generic bar. The party continues. Saturday, February 1st. We'll give you the whole day to recuperate, but get ready to party again Saturday night at Suburban Park. Dance with the DJs all through the night. Listen to win. Free tickets. You guys ought to make this a national holiday. Sunday, February 2nd. Sit back, relax, and enjoy a very special edition of the Future Hits Survey. We'll count down the top 89 songs of our first year on the air. Z89 Weekend. Thursday Party Blitz. And remember, Z89 parties are hot. (laughs) That was produced using two reel-to-reel tape recorders. Uh, two cart machines in the production studio. The mics were bare mics. There was no compression on the mics, no limiters, no nothing. And uh, that promo was, I believe that was written by Scotty Bergstein. Yeah, I was going to let me jump in. I want to just say that, I mean, one of your questions, Jag, is what skills did you learn at the radio station? And delegation, I learned. Um, (laughs) And this is a perfect example of it. I mean, me and my team, which uh, included Jeff Blumen, who was um, our promotion director at the time, I was actually at this point marketing consultant. We put together all the events and the schedule. And so I basically wrote out an outline and um, Hotshot Scott, uh, you know, he wrote it and obviously uh, was the voice of it as well. And obviously, you know what he did in his career. Is he one of the 50 that were, uh, that were trying to get him locked and loaded? Yeah. Trying to get him in for sure. All right. We got to get him on here. He's just had a tremendous career in advertising. So between him and then Chris producing it, and when we talk about everybody's special talent, I mean, that is, you know, I mean, Chris has alluded to it here. I mean, Chris really had the ability 
to do a lot with little and make the station sound fantastic. And so I got to play this promo when I was looking for jobs. And meanwhile, I had nothing to do with producing it, voicing it, or writing it. Um, but I claimed it all to be mine. And, and I continued that throughout my career, and I do that today. <laughs> and what was so great, working with those guys on that particular promo, they were all very coachable. Um, Jonathan Trowin. He was that high-pitched voice. Uh, he, he wasn't too keen on that. But I said, listen, when we put your stuff together with the rest of yeah. this thing, you're going to see that it's going to fit in perfectly uh dave dwyer was the uh friday january 31st <laughs> he was that voice and there's one part in there where scotty hits it to the beat of the music when he says we will be one year old yeah and, and yep. he does it right in the thing and i, I told him i said listen you've got to do it just so because the music that i'm going to have underneath this you got to get it right on each beat they were all very, very coachable and receptive to what my vision was for how this thing should be. What amazes me, having graduated in 2002, is hearing the voices, they sound somewhat like the voices of my classmates. I don't think the voices of 18, 19, and 20-year-old kids have changed all that much over the years. <laughs> no, but, you know, there's something else that I wanted to mention. It was wonderful being at the station at that time because we had the right mix of we had access to this brand new FM station. We had a great group of people. I mean, the talent that all came together during yeah. that time was just amazing. And we were 18, 19, 20 year old kids, but we were producing stuff that was better than 93Q. Yeah. You asked earlier, like about the impact of going on the air FM. You know, I was at staff meetings before we were FM. And, you know, this is from memory for a long time ago, so it might not be exact, but maybe 30, 40 people showed up. Mm -hmm. We did our first staff meeting after being on FM and there was over 200 people. Love it. The promotion department used to be a promotion director and assistant promotion director. I had so many people interested in being a part of the promotion department that we ended up creating five senior staff positions and then five junior staff positions. I had a 10-person department. I mean, the junior staff was more like, I guess, interns and assistants, but it gave them a foot in the door to be you know, on senior staff in the future. I mean, it was just incredible, the talent that we worked with. Sometimes I forget, and then you go back to a banquet and you hang out with somebody you hadn't hung out with in a while. Like, I remember, I mean, it's, um, fortunately, Larry passed away yeah. a couple years ago, but I remember like he came back to a banquet. I hadn't talked to him for like 10, 15 years. And just in that conversation, I'm like, man, how is this kid so smart at 20 years old? You know, it's like I had forgotten how brilliant he was at being a manager at 20 years old. Like stuff that he was doing, I learned later on as a manager. Remember, I also, I remember hold on a minute. Remember last week talking about Larry and his skills. Um, Rocco and I were dealing with promo suite business. And I said, you know, Rocco. Look, I'm the head of this department, and to quote Larry Barrett, <laughs> okay, I've heard all of you. I made my decision. We're sticking with my decision. I picked that up from Larry Barron, wow. a 20-year-old Larry Barron, general manager. 
He is certainly a name that has come up on this podcast so many times, and it's a, it's a real shame that we recently lost him and we're not able to have him on the show himself, because I can't tell you, I'm losing count of the number of Larry Barron stories I've been told on the podcast. Certainly an amazing impact on the radio station. It's WJPZ at 50. Hey, it's Jag. You're probably listening to this episode of the podcast because you know the person I'm interviewing. But one of the true joys of this project has been learning the stories of everyone in the WJPZ family. When you're done with this podcast, I'd encourage you to check out an episode with someone you don't know. You never know what you might have in common with your other WJPZ relatives. Looking back at half a century of broadcast excellence. This is WJPZ at 50. I wanted to talk about uh, the very first banquet because publicly, whenever I've been asked about why I created the first banquet, I always say in uh, my humor that uh, I did it selfishly because I wanted to have somewhere to go back to in Syracuse. I never joined a fraternity. Z89 was my fraternity. I'm sure you've heard that a million times. That's how I feel for sure. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny. I said that right from the beginning and I said it kind of jokingly, but over the years, it's really a proud moment to hear so many people say that, that the banquet has become this destination on all of our calendars. Even in the years we don't go, we join on Zoom now and we get to to hang out with people that we either went to school with or people that we became friends with after school. It's an incredible thing. It's something that I feel uh, very proud of. But I also want to put out there that there was another reason for the original banquet. And it was part of a brainstorming session. And mainly me and Chris, as I said, that you know we really believed in the charter and understood what the founders were trying to do. And what we realized as we were ending 1985, going into 1986 on our first birthday, that nobody on campus and a lot of the students that were working at the station didn't realize that the station had been around for so many years before SM. It's like Mm -hmm. it started on January 30th, 1985. And we wanted to make sure that there was this understanding of what the history was. So at the first banquet, uh, not only did we invite all the older alumni that we had, you know, we didn't have a lot of information, but we tried to invite all the older alumni. We also wrote up a history of WJPZ, a booklet that is still, uh, you know, floating around at banquets now. And that was really the goal. And that's what it's so exciting to be part of this WJPZ at 50, because that's what we're doing here, right? We're acknowledging that the station started uh, well before FM. And, um, you know, I congratulate you for doing that. And the fact that the banquet, I mean, for so many years, Ben Green or me, Ben Green graduated 85, I graduated 86, were always the oldest alum. So it was a battle between us to do the toast. Right. I haven't given a toast in 15 years. So I'm very proud of that. That means that, you know, we've done a really good job of getting the older alumni to come back. You've got some of the originals like Greg Hernandez coming back every year now, which is awesome. So your point is certainly well taken. And Rocco, in addition to doing the banquet, another thing that you're well known for in the Alumni Association is, well, starting the Alumni Association in that same vein. Yes. Well, that came right after graduation. And the good news was that I did not get a job right off the bat. I had to wait six months from graduation before I started at Hot 103 in New York. So in those six months, I took a temp job at Nestle Foods, which is where I uh, aforementioned uh, met my wife. And the other thing I did was had access to uh, a computer. Hmm. So me and Chris started working on putting together the alumni database, 
And I, you know, had the idea of an alumni association. So uh, we started to put that together. I mean, listen, there's nothing I've done at Z89 I didn't do with Chris by my side, one way or the other, whether it was my idea or his idea, we always worked together on it. So we, we had our first meeting the following year. So that would be January 87. I had a long agenda and I got up in front of everybody and said, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. What do you guys think? And they said, great, you run it. Come back to us next year. So, yeah, so I'm the self-appointed uh, first president <laughs> of the Alumni Association and very proud of that as well. And to all of the people that came after us that did a, an amazing job, you know, a special shout out to uh, future soon-to-be Hall of Famer Scotty Meach for really taking the ball and running with it with the Alumni Association um, and so many other people over the years. I don't want to get into naming and, and miss some names, but Scotty Meach really gets... It's almost like I had a seed of an idea and I got it started and then Scott really took it and took off with it and made it into what it is today. Yeah, Scott and I talked about that in his episode of the podcast as well. So you mentioned everything you've done, Rocco. You said Chris has been by your side. That's true as you started Promo Suite, which is a well-known company in the radio industry. What happened between graduation and getting together to start Promo Suite? I was working for MS Broadcasting in New York, Hot 103, which is now Hot 97. Yep. I started as the promotion director, became the marketing director, finally got a computer three years into the job, 1989, hmm. and started looking around to see if there was any software for people that do what I do. And turned out there wasn't. So I called my buddy, Chris, who, uh, when he graduated, rather than pursuing radio, despite the fact that he was so good at it, both <laughs> on air and production, decided to teach himself uh, computer programming and was working at some uh, brokerage firms in uh, the Wall Street area. I called him up and we scheduled a meeting. This meeting occurred in, I believe, July of 1990, uh, which is why I always parallel my marriage to Chris with my marriage to my wife, Lena, because that was two <laughs> months after I got married. And we had a meeting, which is still on a cassette somewhere, God knows where at this point, uh, where I said, here's all the stuff that I need, you know, in a computer program. And Chris took about six weeks to get back to me. And he called me up and he said, hey, I got good news and bad news. And I said, give me the bad news. He goes, well, if I wrote this program for you, it's going to cost about $250,000. Cool. And I'm like, Chris, uh, radio is doesn't have that type of money. He goes, yeah, well, the good news is I don't think this is a project. I think this is a business. Ah, that's how it started. Chris, how did that play out in through your memory and eyes? Uh, it was interesting because it took a lot of work to get the thing off the ground. We're talking several million lines of computer code. Wow. And it got to a point where I couldn't balance my day job with this project as well. Sure. So I quit my day job. Uh, we had no clients whatsoever. I had uh, a few credit cards and <laughs> quickly uh, ran up the credit cards. Uh, it was funny. Rocco would be the quote-unquote sales uh, manager. I was at the quote-unquote office, which was my apartment. Everything's come yep. full circle now after COVID. Everyone's working from home again. Right. But, you know, I would play in the background a uh, cassette when people would call of just like background office noise. 
to make it sound like <laughs> so you're actually oh, calling. Oh, that is a radio production guy right there. That is straight out of the playbook. I love it. Uh, to make it sound like a real company, and Rocco, uh, on his lunch hour, would uh, return sales calls from a, a phone booth that he shared uh, with a bookie. Oh, my God. <laughs> they were fighting. True story. They were fighting over uh, who gets to use the uh, phone booth. Were your kneecaps okay, Rocco? Uh, yes, uh, we, we grew to respect each other. Yeah. <laughs> That's the salesman in you. So that was it. I don't remember if our first station to sign up was WHUR in Washington, D.C. Yes. They were the ones that signed up. But I think Cash FM, K-A-S-H, in Anchorage, Alaska, was the first one to actually sign up, pay the bill, and get shipped the software. And our contact there was Steve Chapman. And every time I had to call him, you had to remind me because I was calling him Steve Cashman because it was from Cash FM. Yeah. <laughs> Not to mention in those days, the long distance bill to call Alaska, I'd imagine. Oh, yeah. I had calling cards for the phone booth. I mean, that's the way it worked. I mean, listen, all props to Chris again. I mean, I had a great idea, but I stayed employed at MS Broadcasting for the first 12 years you know, of that date from right up until 2002. Actually, I left March 1st, 2003. That was my first day officially as a full-time promo suite employee, despite owning the company for 12 years. Um, and Chris did everything. And those first few years were really tough. Um, my wife also garnered the nickname VP of Corporate Catering because once a week I would bring, uh, you know, yeah, uh, chicken, parm. chicken parm, chicken parm, chicken yeah, parm, meatballs, <laughs> spaghetti, humble beginnings. Because otherwise, Chris didn't have time to eat. He was just doing cereal and spaghetti all the time. He had no money, no money. And along the way, we've tried to hire uh, JPZ folks. Well, that's actually where I was going to go next, because you mentioned that 2002 to 2003 transition a minute ago, Rocco. So you hired both uh, my classmate from 2002, Jana Fiorello, and Christy Agonis, who, like Jana, is a rock star. And Christy graduated in 05, when I, and so she was a freshman when I was a senior. And you hired two great people uh, that I went to school with right out of the gate almost. Both Jana and Christy were awesome. I mean, Jana was our first client relations representative as a you know, customer service rep. We needed somebody with a bubbly personality. And I don't, I, I think <laughs> nothing fits Jana more than saying a bubbly personality and really good knowledge of radio. And she was fantastic for us. And then we were expanding our sales department. And I met Christy at a banquet and did an interview. My God, I feel like it was in McDonald's. I don't know if it was McDonald's, but it was somewhere uh, right on South Krause. Yeah. And she was great. Uh, both of them Really, you know, talk about founders of companies. I mean, they really helped us uh, move the needle and get from where we were to where we are now. Talk to me about the growth over the last 20 plus years of the company. I mean, you guys are huge. I can't think of a radio station that I was at that didn't at least use or know of the software. And I'm like, sweet, promo suite, JPZ Love, I'll use this. Absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, it, it's been great. I mean, mixed emotions on all of the changes in radios over, over the years. Sure. Because, you know, when I first started in radio, uh, New York market had 30 promotion directors um, and now they have five. Yeah. Um, so from a standpoint of radio as a career, I think it's definitely hurt a little bit because of there not being as much jobs. But consolidation really helped people like us. Consolidation was really good because instead of having to now target 5,000 different individuals at 5,000 different radio stations. It became a, a single point of contact. Yeah. So that allowed us to actually grow the company relatively quickly after that act 
was uh, passed whenever that was, 96 or something. Yep. The challenge, though, today is that you've got your iHearts and Odysseys, which are, are very centralized, hub-based uh, in terms of how they run things. Sure. But then you've got your smaller groups and, and independent stations, KKBO-FM in Fargo, North Dakota, is an example, that run radio in the traditional way. It's live and it's local and, and all of that. And the challenge for us, especially over the past five years or so, is we've got to have our product able to serve both masters. Okay. The people that are just consolidated and it's hubs and voice tracks all across the country, but also the mom and pop. So that is a continuing issue for us as to how do we keep the software relevant and working the way that radio needs to work. And to that end, uh, we'll do a little shameless plug on where we're going here. When we started our company, workflow software was not a thing. It wasn't something people considered. We didn't consider it, even though that's what we were and that's what we created. And we did it for the promotion department. And as you know, the promotion department touches all the other departments, um, sales, production, programming on the air. So now we have shifted where our company is now focused on being uh, a workflow application for all departments. So we have, uh, well, Chris and his team have been working <laughs> extremely hard on the development side. I keep inviting you to the meetings. You, you keep declining the meetings. There's a lot going on on the other side of the business too, Chris. <laughs> but they've done a great job. We have a brand new platform, which is called the Promo Suite Plus platform. And it includes three products, uh, Promo Suite Production, which is uh, workflow for creating commercials and audio spots. Promo Suite Digital, which is the workflow to get the banner ads up and the videos on your website. And the all new Promo Suite Promotions, which hasn't been released yet, but will be released sometime in 2023. So we're really excited because, you know, you have to constantly reinvent yourself. And that's what, you know, uh, to bring this full circle back to Z89 and learning about radio. If you know how to reinvent yourself as a CHR radio station where you're targeting 12 to 24 year olds who change their taste every six months, <laughs> you're going to be able to carry that over for the rest of your career. So that's where we're at. That is a masterful job and a total pro to bring it full circle as we start to wrap up here. So last question I'll ask the both of you is for a funny story that you look back on mm. and laugh. You've taken the toll some great Chris is already laughing. <laughs> this is going to be at Rocco's expense. <laughs> great news. I was living uh, down in South Campus my junior and senior year, and uh, I had done my shift 7 to 10, Rocco was on 10 to 1 a.m. And I'm, I'm listening to my Sony Walkman, which some people are going to have to look up and see what the heck that is, uh, on the bus. And I hear the song playing and I then hear Rocco saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Turn on 93Q in the background. So it sounds like, you know, you've got like some party station on and, and then say what your song is that you want to request. And of course, this is... Oh my God, he was coaching the caller. Yeah, and this is before uh, cell phones. So I'm like, oh my God, oh my God. So there was no way, no way to stop it. That's my funny WJPZ story at Rocco's expense. And Chris, so that story again proves why I decided uh, that behind the scenes was my future, <laughs> not on the air. <laughs> oh, that was a good one. Live and local. <laughs> Can't get more live than that. 
Chris Bungo, Rocco Macri, thank you both for your contributions to the radio station as students and to the radio station as alumni, two Hall of Famers in the class of 86. And thank you for your time doing this podcast today. It's great to be with both of you. Uh, it was fun. Thanks. Yeah. And thank you for doing this. I've listened to a couple. They're fantastic. And if, uh, if you can make us sound good, then I'll know how great you are as a producer. No pressure. Thanks, guys. <laughs> The WJPZ at 50 podcast is created entirely by the staff and alumni of the world's greatest media classroom. It's hosted by John Jag Gay, class of 2002. Editing help from James Bames Grundy III, class of 2020. Imaging by Maureen Cooper, class of 1999. And Ed Lacombe, class of 1985. Podcast artwork by Marty Dundix, class of 2001. Follow WJPZ at 50 on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you're listening right now.